This is That Marketing Podcast. Made by marketers for marketers. Welcome to another edition of That Marketing Podcast. We've gone for something with a different flavour this week with the help of our special guest, Parry Malm, the co-founder and CEO of Frazy, the AI-powered copywriting company. This conversation turned out a little bit differently. We ended up talking about uh, a lot of the things that marketers actually often get wrong, um, offering some interesting sort of correctives and perspectives on things like uh, personalization, our tendency to over-scrutinize data and results. And we touched on Parry's favorite piece of writing to learn marketing from, which might be somewhat different from your expect. I had a really good time recording this conversation. I hope you have a great time listening to it. And as always, happy marketing. Uh, you spoke at the Festival of Marketing in 2018 about the importance of, of ethics, especially when it comes to applying AI and sort of behavioral data to marketing, especially not using particularly negative emotions to, to encourage people to buy. Do you think since then we have seen a marked improvement in that or does, does marketing still have quite a way to go? Well, I mean, I I think you can't really paint marketing with with one brush and um and say it's it's either good or bad like anything in life. There are good actors and there are bad actors. I think that there's definitely been a real move in the marketing industry in the last couple of years to move away from these sort of dodgy short-termist tactics you know these like double glazing tactics that you high pressure people into buying stuff that they probably don't want but there's still going to be actors who who act like that i think what what it's really taught me in the last couple of years is that like we're in a fortunate spot where we can choose who we work with and choose who we don't work with um and by virtue of doing that we've we've built up a client roster of of brands who are forward thinking um, and we reject brands who seem to be a bit more stuck in the past or just focused on different priorities than what we think is important. Right. I mean, um, what we do for, for our audience or what we encourage our audience to do is, that, I suppose, it's still the old school method is is a lot of split testing. I wanted to get your opinions on some of the things we've come up there. One of the things we found that actually took us by surprise, we did it as a throwaway test, was uh, lead gen email with a blank subject line actually did really well and um, are we the only ones that have ever done that or have you come across others that have done that and had a good result from it well i i, I can't really comment on lead gen emails because our our technology isn't built for sort of small scale marketing like that and 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 what i couldn't really say is like any specific rule sets which are sort of a one size fits all you know if you do a b and c it's going to work for you i mean if that was possible and if this problem was so simple then then we we wouldn't exist as a business um i think like like i mean we we um encourage our customers to test lots and test at scale and we use the the output of those tests um as base training data for our various ai models and and what it's shown us is that like language and, and, you know, be it in subject lines or Facebook ads or wherever is insanely complicated. And while like we as humans all think that, that we can write the perfect subject line, say, um, the thing is there's like billions of ways of saying the same thing. The human brain is not set up to explore that entire universe of different linguistic combinations and permutations and 
ideas and sentiments and words and phrases and punctuation and emoji and so on and so forth. So like, like, I mean, yeah, like split testing is critical and it's, it's, it's super important to make sure you're, you're, you're putting your best foot forward. But if you're just split testing a bunch of bad stuff, then you're going to find the least bad option. It's really important to work in conjunction with high powered predictive models, not just sort of split testing on a whim or else you're just going to be chasing your own tail over and over and over. Okay, yeah, you, you mentioned emojis there, and I think in um, in your book, The Language Effect, you've talked about emojis a little bit as well. One of the things we found is that uh, they become less effective over time. They initially massively outperformed just a text-only subject line. Do you think all, all sort of language optimization has that problem, that there's a degree of all shiny newness in it, and then people will sort of revert back to what, they, what they're more familiar with, or is that not part of what you can test, do you think? Well, I mean, emojis by themselves aren't, good and they aren't bad they just are and and like and an emoji by itself is not going to make or break a subject line it's not going to make somebody open your stuff um we we've we've run some pretty wide scale data backed research on this topic and we found that emojis are kind of like sex panther cologne from from anchorman where 60 percent <laughs> of the time it works every time right where basically, if your subject line is good in the first place, adding a, a contextually relevant emoji will make it better and it'll amplify it. But if your subject line sucks in the first place, then it will amplify it just in the wrong direction. Um, I think it's really important to think about emojis as amplification tools, but not as a binary, should we use them or should we not? Because that's, that's just not the right question. The right question is, you know, is your subject line good in the first place? Will an emoji make it better? And so does then the same argument apply to specific personalization with an audience that people aren't going to respond to a bad subject line with their name in it any more than they respond to a, a bad one without it? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about personalization is like sticking somebody's first name into a subject line. That's not personalization. That's a database match. But but I do think that people have like gone down this rabbit hole of personalization for the last, you know, five or 10 years saying that we got to have the right message, to the right person at the right time. And I think that that's like bullshit, basically. So like if if personalization works so well, then why is the single most effective format of advertising on the planet still a, a homogenous Super Bowl advert, which is not personalized whatsoever? If, if personalization was right for all marketing, then we would no longer have any mass marketing, but the majority of advertising spend in the world is done on mass marketing. And it's all about finding that message that resonates with the masses because that's how you really galvanize growth. It also allows you to create like advertising based social experiences. So like, I mean, one, one example from the, the late nineties is the Budweiser was up ad, right? Where that was a generic ad that everybody got, but God damn it. At that time, me and my buddies were all phoning each other up and being like, what's up, what's up? And it was a thing. It was like a cultural phenomenon. And you would never get that with personalization because it's not a shared experience. So like, again, like is personalization good or bad? There are some very, very specific use cases in which personalization is good, but they're very specific and very point-based solutions. Broadly speaking, advertising works when it's mass market advertising and people seem to have lost that point because there's so many technologies out there offering personalization solutions 
Um, but just because there's technology there doesn't mean you should use it. And if you can craft a really effective mass marketing message, you'll get much better bang for your buck from doing that than you will from blasting out stuff to, to, to Bob and Betty. Do you guys separate your client base between B2B and B2C? Because our, our base is predominantly B2B, so I wonder how much you can draw and it, it sounds like the answer may be you can't generalize, but how much can you draw distinctions between what works for B2B and B2C? Because either you need to learn, the two schools seem to be you learn, you either copy everything B2C does or you see it as a completely different silo because they're not trying to target an audience in, in the same way and they've got a completely different buying cycle. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. Like that's not something that I think about very much. We sell into businesses, so we're a, a B2B operator. All of our customers are large, like blue chip B2C brands, like your your Ebay's, your Domino's, your Groupon's, brands like that. But we've always like marketed ourselves just in in our way. I mean, a lot of people will look in and be like, "Oh, Frazy's cool. It markets itself like a B2C brand." But I mean, I've got no experience in doing B2C C marketing. I'm a career B2B marketer. I just think like most B2B marketing sucks and is boring. And one of my big mantras from day one for Frazy was just to never be boring. Because like there's no reason why a B2B marketing campaign needs to be super lame and boring. Like just because your product's boring doesn't mean that your marketing has to be boring, right? So we've just always like, I like, like, I mean, we, we, we don't think of ourselves as like thought leadership. We think of ourselves as like punk rock perspectives where it's like, just cause stuff has always been done in a certain way, doesn't mean it needs to be done like that. So we've just found what, what works for us. And like, really, I mean, lots of B2B marketing, it just kind of sucks. Like, like does the world need another like four page white paper? It doesn't, it absolutely doesn't. So like we've really leaned into it. We've created like 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 an entire content hub and we're like just piling loads of just useful stuff into it because like that's what works for us. For some brands, I mean, like our methods probably wouldn't work and 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 there's probably a bunch of experts who would look in our shop and be like, "What the hell are you doing? You're screwing it all up." But I mean, we're not. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> if, it, if it works for you, then you crack on basically. Yeah. Sure. Do you think part of the problem with data is that we we start thinking about the why something works rather than just going, oh, cool, that works, let's do it? Yeah, like we we find that a fair amount where, you know, especially because we're dealing with, you know, lots of language at scale, there's an intellectual curiosity about why something is happening. But people actually scrutinize data a lot more than they scrutinize humans. Like, Like humans on a daily basis make bizarre choices like i mean like just 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 think about your your daily life i mean probably you know if you think about some of the choices you've made in the last week none of them or like a bunch of them won't be rational they they won't make sense but they're the choices you made so you can rationalize them retrospectively when you do stuff on a purely database standpoint one of the challenges right is that you then try to like rationalize it with numbers and try to find reasons why something happened and you're absolutely right you do like lose sight of but it works like the why matters to a certain point, especially if you're dealing with like stuff that sort of, you know, treads the line of ethical boundaries and whatnot, where like you do need a solid justification as to why you took a certain course of action. But like, I mean, if you're sending out emails to a few prospects or if you're writing a subject line, like even if you do it wrong, no one's going to die. So like just do something <laughs> that works. Yeah, you can get obsessed, too obsessed with 
the spacing or who an email comes from and signs off and things but ultimately it, it only matters what your audience think of it if, unless you are your audience which is which isn't the case for most marketers then whether you like it or not is is completely irrelevant to the creative process as long as you can justify it with with results out the other end indeed yeah i mean i think like like people people try to sort of um project their beliefs on their audience right and the problem with that is that your audience, first of all, is not the same as you. Um, your audience will perceive your brand and your offering in ways that are different from how you aspire for it to be positioned. So like, like I mean, you can try to force through a message into the market, but the market is going to understand it in their own unique way and so forth. So you sometimes just need to kind of flex with that and not be super rigid and like beholden to this sort of marketing program which you've got written down you know there are, there are bits of marketing that you sort of have to do week in week out you know that list is shrinking as we go on but how do you find about between not throwing out something that works in favor of something new and and actually embracing a new thing that can can do better that's something i think especially small marketing teams will probably struggle with yeah well i mean i guess the the sort of example here is the is a power of email right where um for like years and years and years, I mean, you guys would know this acutely. I mean, every few years, somebody is going to kill email. Like it was blogs in the 2000s, then it was RSS feeds, then it was Facebook, then it was Slack. I mean, next year it'll be something else, right? Yeah. And 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 people go like, oh, okay, we got to get a big like Facebook presence. So they'll spend, you know, they'll like hire a, a social media person who will then build them a Facebook group. And then they'll realize that they need to pay Facebook every time they want to reach that that group. And it becomes this sort of like like walled garden of skimming off the top where you basically need to pay a Facebook tax or the most egregious is a Google tax where if you go to your brand's website, you got to pay Google a tax to come up first now. Um, or else your competition bid on it, right? The great thing about email is that it's like first party data. Like once you've built that data, there's nothing stopping you from contacting that data as much as 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 much as you want. I mean, there's a small marginal cost with an ESP, but it's a marginal cost. You know, it doesn't really touch the sides. So like email is super boring. Like it is probably the most boring of any of the online channels, but it's also the workhorse, the most effective one. And the one that should probably get a lot more love and a lot more investment, because like I said, it's first party data. You're not beholden to these like monopolistic actors in the marketplace who are basically eating your, your lunch to access your audience. Are you able to explain sort of how, how you, how you retain a brand voice through language? If you're, if you're using purely data driven insight for your copywriting, it, it always seems like the argument is, oh, brand voice has to come from a person because people understand it better. Yeah. So, so, so basically, the um, question is, is, is basically about can you like codify brand guidelines, right? If you think about a brand guideline document, it's a set of rules which you need to follow to ensure that the language which you use adheres to your brand's tone of voice. Now, if you have a set of rules that need to be followed, there's an old adage that humans say, and that's rules are made to be broken. So people will break rules. Um, if you have those rules codified in place, a machine is incapable of breaking those rules. Ergo, if you use a machine to generate content, um, it will not flout rules. It will not justify rules. It will not bend the rules. It will adhere to the rules exactly as you've written them. So actually to adhere to a brand guideline, you're actually better off 
using software than leaving it to, to humans on their own because humans will always find a way to bend the rules. Rules are made to be broken, right? Whereas machines are not capable of doing that. I suppose that comes back around to sort of after the fact justification. You say, oh, I sent this email out. Oh, why did you do this? Or because I think our brand voice can evolve in that way, but it might not yeah. meet the rules that you've laid out, especially as the marketing team are probably making the rules and applying them. Most definitely, like, like there's, there's always a way to like justify actions. You know, this like post event rationalization um, is is why like suddenly it's okay to drive 230 miles to, to Durham to see your parents during a <laughs> fucking lockdown. Earn my yeah. French, right? So like, I mean, humans are so good at like gaslighting, right? Um, whereas machines are incapable of doing that. So if you want to have like a codified marketing program, a codified marketing voice, the best thing you can do is invest in software to codify that because then you remove ambiguity, you remove cognitive bias, you remove gut feeling. Right, I suppose the, the, other, the other objection you like, like to get there is that machines are gonna take all our jobs. Your um, question was probably along the lines of, well, should marketers be concerned though if they're investing more time and resource into amping machines up to do various portions of their job, should humans have an existential concern about whether or not these machines are going to come take their jobs and they'll be stuck on on the breadline afterwards? Is that basically what the question was? Basically, yeah. So, like, the way that I'd frame that is like this. You know, if we think back, like, 20, 25 years when – so back in the day when people needed to, like, design something, let's say a, a brochure, right, they would have – an illustrator, a cutting room, they would have like this big graphic area, right? And they would like make this beautiful thing, right? They would do it all by hand. They would then send that off to the printer who would then put it onto a litho screen. They would print it out, mail it out, become billionaires, right? Now, um, that involved a lot of human stuff, right? There's a lot of, of, of human work. There's a lot of sort of specialist equipment needed. So there's huge capital cost also, but then, some guy said, what if we did this on machines instead? And that guy invented Photoshop or Corel Draw or whichever, right? So then what that did is it, it democratized access to um, high-powered design tools. Now, at the time, there were a bunch of designers going, ah, these, these, this, this program is going to come and take my job. I, I, I'm not going to have time to like to later, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to have a job in the future because, you know, these, 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 these machines will make me irrelevant. And people who thought like that probably did have to retrain and get a new career. But those who didn't think like that, who actually embraced that technology, um, realized the, the real power of it. What Photoshop did is it took away all of the mundane parts of graphics and design and so forth, and it allowed people to be creative much more efficiently and effectively. It also democratized access to it. So now there's actually more designers on the planet than there were 25 years ago, directly because of Photoshop. So like what Frazee is doing is quite similar, right? P people were always beholden to copywriters, to so this sort of like, like dark art of copywriting. Um, and copywriters who, and there are some very, very skilled copywriters out there, um, like these sort of, you know, corner corner office situated, like fancy suit wearing Don Draper types, but they are not a dime a dozen. They're very scarce. They're, they're, there's not many of them. 
So would you want like to have Don Draper spend all of his time writing a subject line for you? Well, no, it doesn't make sense. So what Frazy does, it democratizes access to those sort of mundane parts of, of copywriting. So good copywriters can focus on doing good copywriting. And basically like the, the copywriters who are fighting it um, are the ones who just aren't thinking very creatively. They're thinking very short term. Like this technology is here, it's not going away. One like sort of Luddite with a hammer in, in, in the cotton mill is not gonna take down the industrial revolution. So the smart ones are actually embracing it. And it's those marketers of the future who can look, who can look out beyond this sort of you know mini existential crisis which they're having right now they can look beyond that and realize that actually what's happening is is a revolution there's a photoshop now but for copywriting and people who are jumping on board with that are reaping the benefits people following up from this podcast obviously we're going to we're going to point people towards towards phrase and we're going to point them towards towards the book that you did the language effect but um, in terms of other resources that people can take to start start thinking more creatively about copy, where else would you would you point them for inspiration? Well, I mean, I'm not a big fan of um, business experts. I'm not a big fan of like Gary V and people like that. Um, I'd say as soon as somebody calls himself an an expert, you should like turn around and run for days. I'm personally a big fan of like learning from the past. Like, I mean, one one book that I always recommend reading is uh, Candide by Voltaire because what it does is it, it really outlines the difference between scarcity and rarity. Um, and, and, and you don't need to read a textbook to like get that, but that's hugely important because if your product is rare, it doesn't matter. If your product is scarce, then you're on to a real valuable product right there. So like, like, like I guess my my point is, if you want to be real creative, then you got to get outside of these sort of um, these like echo chambers. If all you read is like marketers talking about marketing, you're never going to learn anything new. If you're only speaking to people who are doing the same work as you, you're never going to get outside of that echo chamber. You know, it's why I read The Guardian and The Daily Mail. To be honest, I don't agree with either of them. But it's really important to get as many points of view as possible so so then you can synthesize them and make your own opinions up. So yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a wishy-washy answer to be honest, but I just like I find the vast majority of like marketing books and business books that I've read, I sort of like know less after reading them than before I pick them up and that doesn't really instill me with a huge amount of motivation. I think it's quite freeing that there's no we get so many all these five books you must read to be a marketer and they're sort of dense tomes. But say, um, no, Candide's not particularly long, is it? I think I think I've had a look at it before, and it's only a hundred and twenty odd pages, something like that. Is it? It's after a big earthquake in Portugal. It's just it's it's a lovely read. But like, what's super neat about it is that when when the dude went to I think it was Peru and discovered that the tribes there had lots and lots of gold. But they didn't care because they didn't value gold. Gold there was was not scarce. So it, it, it's it's sort of a neat concept where like I mean if you can really find something that's scarce, then then you can make a lot of money from it. If you find something that's rare, then it's basically uh it's like anthrax is rare, but there's no demand for anthrax, so it's not scarce. So you can't <laughs> sell anthrax. And I mean anthrax, the disease, not the band. Well, listen, thanks for your time and for uh, having us on. Thank you very much for doing it. And um, I hope I'll speak to you again soon.
Yeah, sounds good, pal. You take care, eh? Yeah, you too. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for another episode of That Marketing Podcast. You clearly have wonderful taste. We hope you found the content useful and and enjoyed it. We'd love you to subscribe wherever it is you're listening to us. Maybe leave us a review. If you can think of a topic that you, you'd like us to cover, or even if you fancy coming on the podcast and sharing your own experience on a particular topic, uh, you can reach us at marketingteam at spotler.co.uk. Thanks once again and happy marketing.